morning text we find in the book of Joshua, the 24th chapter, the first 15 verses, reading as follows in Jesus' name. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I assigned the mountains of Sur to Esau. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your forefathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between them and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Parasites, Canaanites, the Hittites, Regicides, Hivites, and Jesuits. But I gave them into your hand. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers, worship beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, 
then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. After wandering now for 40 years in the wilderness, the people of Israel have arrived in the plains of Moab, which is just east of the Jordan River, opposite Jericho. And here in this place, one of the saddest scenes in all the Bible takes place. To me, it seems that way, at least. Moses is 120 years old, it tells us. His strength is unabated and his eye is not dim. And he's loved by this people very, very much, this people of of Israel. He had been their deliverer, their general, their lawgiver, their advocate with God, their prophet, their inspiration, their judge, and their pastor for over 40 years. And the relationship there was very sweet. He was also a song writer. The closer you get into God, the more impelled you feel to write songs to Him. And Moses talked with God face to face, the scriptures tell us. One of the last songs that he wrote and presented to the people is in Deuteronomy 32, which begins like this. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the gentle rain before the tender grass, and as the showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and right are all his ways. And the song goes on for 43 more verses as Moses spells out the beauties of his God that he has learned over the many years of his service. Now, I suppose it wouldn't mean nearly as much if a young pastor stood up and said, God is right. God is good, God is just, God is faithful. I have found Him so in all my life. A little short life. But when a man who's a veteran of 120 years with the Lord says the Lord is faithful, the Lord is good, He's right, He does what's good, then you listen, don't you? You stop and you pay attention. And that's what He said. It was a high day, but what gave the day its poignancy was what happened after the song. Deuteronomy 32, 48. The Lord said to Moses that very day, Ascend this mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I give to the people of Israel for a possession, and die 
on the mountain which you ascend. And be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribath Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Because you did not revere me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you. But you shall not go there into the land which I give to the people of Israel. I see an old man. Still a straight back and a strong bronze face and eyes as clear as crystal. Long white hair down on his shoulders climbing this mountain. And on the east, he looks down and smaller and smaller becomes the beloved encampment, Israel, that he has served these 40 years. And larger and larger as he climbs becomes the Jordan and the Transjordan, the promised land as he looks over towards the great sea. And I see him now atop Mount Pisgah with his face to the west and the wind blowing through that white hair. After one of the greatest ministries the world has ever known and tears of regret streaming down his face. And I ask myself every time I see this scene, every time I read through the Bible, it grabs me. And I ask myself, how many conquests of joy, Piper, have you forfeited through disobedience? The story was told for us back in Numbers 20. God had said to Moses and Aaron, yeah, the people are thirsty. Tell the rock before this people to yield its water, so you shall bring water out of the rock. But Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I will give them. And so Moses died in the plains of Moab. And the people wept for Moses 30 days because they loved him so much. The mantle of leadership passes to Joshua, son of Nun, the great general who had led the military exploits for 40 years now since coming out of Egypt. Moses' personal assistant who ministered at the tabernacle with Moses. The grief gradually passes away as all grief does and an excitement starts to build among the people of Israel. God is about to fulfill the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A promised land in which the people can dwell in safety and minister to the Lord and to each other in righteousness and holiness all their days. But there's a difference now. Even though just as the people came out of Egypt through a divided Red Sea, the land of bondage, leaving, so the river Jordan divides and they walk on dry ground into the promised land. And the difference is this. There are no armies chasing Israel this time. They could have taken their time. They could have built rafts. They could have built some boats. They could have built a long rope bridge and gotten across without any fanfare, no miracle needed 
this time. But God did it. And he had a purpose. He had three purposes that he wanted to accomplish in dividing the Jordan River. And they're told to us in Joshua. Chapter 3, verse 5, or chapter 5 as well. First one is this. God wanted to do Joshua the same favor he did to Moses. Namely, to put his stamp of approval on his leadership. This is what it says in Joshua 3, 7. This day, Joshua, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That was the first purpose of the division of the Jordan River. Second, God aimed to strengthen the people's faith, to demonstrate to them that he is with them and that he aims to give them victory. Joshua 3.10 Hereby you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail. Drive out before you the Canaanites. And the third purpose that God had in doing this for the people of Israel was to melt the hearts of their enemies. Joshua 5.1 When all the kings of the Canaanites that were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no more spirit left within them. Those three things are why God, whether he had to or not, divided the Jordan River and the people walked over on dry ground. But now to make sure that the people understood that it was the God of Sinai, the God of the covenant, who was doing this, he had the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant on these poles step into the water first. And as soon as the priests put their foot in the water, the waters mounted up on the north side. And the priests walked, carrying the covenant, into the middle of the riverbed and stopped. And the Ark of the Covenant, the most precious piece of furniture in all the tabernacle, stood there with the waters mounted behind it as the Israelites filed by. Now, why do you suppose God did it that way? Wasn't he trying to say... To those people as they walked by the Ark of the Covenant. Remember. It is the God of the Covenant. The God of Sinai. The God who gave you this direction for life. In the Ten Commandments. Which are housed in this very little box of the Covenant. That God is mounting up these waters. That God can show this power. And the conclusion would be. Wouldn't it? Surely. We won't break covenant with this God. If by keeping the covenant. This sort of power is at our disposal. Isn't that the message of putting the Ark of the Covenant square in the center of the riverbed while the people walk by and the waters mount up on the right? Once on the other side, they encamp at Gilgal. And three important things happen at this encampment at Gilgal. The first is that all the males who had not been circumcised in the wilderness and were not told why since leaving Egypt they had not been circumcised according to the laws of the covenant in Genesis 17, but they hadn't. So they had a great day of consecration, national consecration, and did what they should have done all along. They purified themselves in this way. The second thing that happened was they gave a great spread of the Passover. 
which I think is very significant when you think back about the relationship between the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. Remember I said there that the crossing of the Red Sea was based on the Passover. Had there been no Passover, God could have never done that wonderful thing in splitting the Red Sea. And now, as if to say the same thing in reverse, the Passover is celebrated once the Jordan is crossed. And finally, the next day, after the celebration of the Passover, the manna ceases. Never again do the people of Israel get that. Now, we can imagine that some of the weak-spirited among the Israelites might have said in the plains of Moab, well, if things don't work out, we can still go back to Egypt and hire out as slaves and at least have food. No more. No more can they say that. The river has closed behind them. The manna is gone. Before them, the fortified city of Jericho, they will either conquer according to the word of the Lord or be annihilated as a people. Now, that's a good position to be in. That's the position we Christians ought to find ourselves in more often because it clears the air. It helps us see what's at stake in obedience, doesn't it? Obedience and conquering, disobedience and annihilation. That's really what's at stake, whether they knew it in the wilderness or not. Now... The story of the conquest from Gilgal to the whole land is told very briefly, can be summed up, in the book of Joshua. It goes like this in just a few sentences. Jericho falls flat at the sound of the trumpet in chapter 6. Then after a brief setback in chapter 7 when Achan disobeys the Lord and the people are defeated, they defeat Ai. Ai falls flat. Then, using Gilgal as a base, Joshua sweeps through the southern part of Canaan, conquering all the cities. And that's told in Joshua 9 and 10. Then, in chapter 11, he sweeps north, conquering all the other fortified cities and the nations of Canaan. And then, in chapters 13 to 21, the land is divided out to all the people of Israel according to their tribes. And the climax of the book comes in chapter 21... Verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he swore to give to their fathers. And having taken possession of it, they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. They all came to pass. The book of Joshua ends on a triumphant note. It's a great book. But there are premonitions of trouble at the end of Joshua. The nations which had been defeated had remnants still in the land. The power bases were destroyed, but the peoples remained with their idols. And that was going to create a problem. And Joshua warned the people against that snare at the end of Joshua. And as we enter into the book of Judges, a new atmosphere altogether is felt. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 tells us ominously, all that generation were gathered to their father. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done for Israel. 
And the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, I want to pause here and apply this to us parents of younger children. And the application is to the rest of us as well because you can all help me in this church disseminate this conviction. How do you suppose a generation arose in Israel who didn't know the Lord or the, the mighty deeds He had done 30 years ago? The only way that could have happened is if Fathers and mothers of children neglected to obey the words that I spoke in that aisle last Sunday when the children were dedicated to the effect that it is our duty to teach our children the great things of God. Apparently they did not speak of them when they sat in their house, when they walked in the way, when they lay down and when they rose up. They just let the Sunday school do it. Perhaps. Parents, and here I admonish myself, especially because my schedule is a terrible threat to obedience on this score. Listen, here's a word from the Lord in Psalm 78. God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to the fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn that might arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget what the Lord God had done, but keep his commandments. Parents, do you spend 10 or 15 minutes a day with the children telling them about the great deeds of God? The hundreds of stories in the Bible that manifest the faithful power of God on behalf of those who trust Him? Do you have a big fat book like the old Hurlbuts that you open before them and they get used to? Big colorful pictures or black and white ones that boil down these exciting stories into their essential and exciting components? No kid wants to go to bed. You've got a captive audience. They'll do anything for those last 15 minutes before you send them to bed. Use them. They are precious. They will never forget those stories. We must remember this. No matter how many conquests of faith we are enjoying because of our parents' faithfulness, if we are not teaching our children the great deeds of God and the great doctrines of the faith, we are preparing them to serve the Baals. And we must accept that responsibility, parents. It is mine. The Lord will look to me for Karsten and Benjamin and Abraham. I cannot blame their failure to know the Lord and their failure to understand His ways on Don or Shirley or Velma or Sandy or Joan or Judy or Tom or Carl or any of their other teachers. It is my obligation. The Lord will hold me and Noel accountable and you for your children. Fatherhood and motherhood are divine appointments, eternally important. And we must not let a generation arise who do not know the mighty deeds of God or the great doctrines of the faith. I hope that these ten messages on the history of redemption will stimulate you to go back and 
Look at those stories again so that maybe as grandparents you can spend those minutes with the children. Now let's do one more thing. Let's look back over this event of conquest and ask two questions about it. Questions which I think we have to answer if we're going to know what God's purpose was in this event and what the lessons are for us. The first question is this. How can we justify the aggression of a foreign people marauding through the homeland of the Canaanites and destroying all their cities? If a nation did that today, we would rise up in arms and cry out in opposition and not worship because of it. How do we justify what Israel did in taking Canaan? I think there is an answer to that question that enables us to worship God as a holy and faithful God in doing this. And I think the answer has three parts. First, in the period of redemptive history, from the Exodus to the Incarnation, from Moses to Jesus, God has a very unique purpose for his people. He wills that the people of God have a national political form and not just a religious form. And this is unique in this period of history. He will that it be a political body, not just a religious one. Now, I tried to think why God wanted it this way. You know, why not sojourners and aliens all the time, just like there were before and like there are since And I think maybe for these three reasons, it was God's purpose, though there may have been others. First, I think he typified that he owns the land. He owns it. And second, he foreshadowed that one day the people of God will own the whole world. We will inherit the earth, as Jesus said. And third, by having... For this span of history, the people of God in a political national form, he secured a prominence for Israel so that all the lessons that he wanted to teach to Israel and through Israel to us would have grand historical prominence in history. But before Moses, it was not so. Abraham was a sojourner, a wanderer in the land. And it has not been so since the incarnation, for now the church is the people of God. It is the true Israel. And the church, as the New Testament teaches, are aliens, exiles, sojourners in the earth. There is no political, national form to the people of God today and therefore any nation that undertakes to do what Israel did from Moses to Jesus would be a very guilty nation and worthy of divine judgment. Now that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is that this unique people of God, Israel, had God as its commander in chief, not any man. God was working through this people. This was not the aggression of a willful, private group of humans. This was the command of God. He gave them the orders and he fought for them. As the text was read earlier, God warns Joshua, don't you think that you defeated these people? I did it. 
God takes all of it upon himself. And therefore, the way to conceive Israel at this time is as an instrument or a weapon in the hand of Almighty God to bring judgment upon the nations. And that brings us to the third part of the answer. The purpose of the conquest was not merely to clear a space for Israel. It was to judge the wickedness of the nations. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 9, 4, and 5. The Lord said... Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust out these nations before you. It was because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations, says the Lord, that he is driving them out before you to confirm the word which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So those three things make up the justification for the way Israel acted in this period of history, not before and not after. Namely, it was a unique people of God in that it had a national political form in that period. Second, God was acting through Israel. He was the commander in chief. He was doing the fighting. And third, the conquest was not merely to clear a space for Israel, but... To bring judgment, God's historical judgment upon the nations because of their idolatry. Now, one final question to ask about the conquest. And this, I hope, will bring it close to home because it is close to home if we understand it. The writer to the Hebrews has been a great help to me here. He read the conquest and he applied it to his day. Now, I'm not going to read for you Hebrews chapter 4. That's where it's found. But I want to try to do for you what the writer to the Hebrews did for his readers in the last few minutes. Here's what he does, first of all. He notices that in Joshua, in chapter 21, verse 44, and chapter 23, verse 1, the Lord gave rest on every side as he swore to the fathers. Notice two things. They have rest now in the promised land. And the rest is a fulfillment of prophecy. But he also notices something else. The rest is very imperfect and very short-lived. The enemies still lurked in the suburbs of those cities that had been destroyed. This is hardly the grand final fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that there would be rest for the people. Therefore... The writer to the Hebrews concludes there must yet be a rest. There must be a purpose of God beyond the conquest. All the mighty deeds of God to bring about rest imperfectly must point beyond that to a rest that will one day be perfectly experienced. And he went to the Psalms and he found a confirmation of that very view. He went to Psalm 95 verses 7 to 11. And here's what the writer to the Hebrews read. He read this plea. Oh, that today you would hearken to the voice of God and not harden your hearts, as did the people in the wilderness, so that the Lord said, I swear to you, you will not enter into my rest. Then the writer to the Hebrews said, now notice the implication. He is a very astute interpreter of the Psalms and of Joshua. He says, hmm, 
If David said, today, don't harden your heart. Open your heart to God. Listen. Don't be like those who failed to enter the rest. That must imply the rest can still be entered. The rest is still there. The promise to Abraham is still open to any who will hear and not harden his heart. And then he steps back and looks at the intervening period from David to his time. And he says, there's no event in here that is the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of the rest promised to Abraham and his descendants. And therefore he concludes in a beautiful illustration of how to interpret the Old Testament. There must still be a rest for the people of God. Here are the words in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 5 to 11. And again, in this place, God said, They shall never enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to because of disobedience, that's referring to the people in the wilderness, again he sets a day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then he concludes, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later of another day. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And here I am, 2,000 years after the ride to the Hebrews, saying the very same thing. We have not come into that rest. And therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A great hope out before us. And it is yours, because remember the sermon several weeks ago, the people of faith are the children of Abraham. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, partially now, in this period, through the peace that passes understanding, but finally and ultimately and perfectly, in a new heavens and a new earth, in a promised land where all sin and enemies and all sin, guilt and death are done away with. And if we see that the first Joshua was able to bring victory to his people, how much more our second Joshua? You know that the name Jesus and Joshua are the same name, right? They're spelled exactly the same in the original language. God is our deliverer. Therefore, everything written in the conquest of Canaan was written for our sakes in order that we might have hope. In all those events, as we read them, we see dimly reflected the conquest of Jesus over sin and guilt and death and hell. And therefore, as the Hebrews writer says, let us strive to enter that rest, lest any of us fall by that same sort of disobedience. For if we hold fast our first confidence firm to the end, God is going to divide that final deep river of death and he's going to pick us up and he is going to carry us over on dry ground and set us in a promised land where there is peace and a great feast forevermore.